Thanks to Harry's for supporting The Motley Fool. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Another Tuesday and another episode of the Consumer and Retail Edition of Industry Focus. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and the date is November 14th. Joining me via Skype from Raleigh, North Carolina, is senior Fool.com contributor Asit Sharma. Thanks for joining us, Asit. Thank you, Vince. As always, what better place to spend my Tuesday afternoon than with you and our fellow investors? Well, you mentioned you were a little bit under the weather, so I'm really glad you are braving through that and uh, will be able to join us on the show today because we have some pretty interesting news and uh, a great company to cover that IPO'd in the past year. So, first things first, uh, I hope you don't mind if we start this episode by returning to a discussion that Danny Venna and I had actually two weeks ago. So, on Halloween, we talked about the toy industry, how Toys R Us is thinking about its business uh, with the bankruptcy generally in its rearview mirror, and then also how Mattel and Hasbro are dealing with changing consumer trends and some of the successes and challenges that they're facing themselves. And we've seen previously in many industries that are struggling with lots of change or upheaval, consolidation becomes a pretty popular way of surviving or. Uh, or just enjoying a little bit more growth and, and success in that industry. So, as of late last week, investors are reacting to the news that Hasbro has actually approached Mattel with a buyout offer. So, these are the number one and number two toy companies combined. They'd have about one third industry market share in the United States with over $10 billion of revenue. And their portfolio would include very famous toy names like Barbie, American Girl. Fisher-Price, Nerf, Monopoly, Transformers, and dozens and dozens of other brands. So, we got a few minutes to talk about this news. Asa, what do you think? I like this idea. Um, if you were to go back to 2014, uh, you would see the path of these two stocks cross. And since then, Mattel has lost 61% of its value, and Hasbro has gained 75%. Hasbro, obviously, this much stronger player here. It's got operating margins of 15% plus. Uh, every year, and Mattel's operating margins have dropped to under 4%. Why is that? I think um, Hasbro has embraced more of an omni-channel strategy than Mattel has over the years. It's been quicker to embrace online sales, and Mattel still has a heavy foot in the point-of-sale world. So when we saw uh, Toys R Us, Us have this bankruptcy filing, actually Mattel was hit a lot harder than Hasbro was because Mattel can't manage its inventory quite as adeptly as Hasbro, and it relies more on these traditional retail channels. Having said that, it's got awesome brands, uh, Barbie, uh, Fisher-Price, Hot Wheels, so there is a lot of synergy between these two companies, and I think the stronger player Hasbro can really optimize uh, operations for Mattel, and together, not to sound cliche, but we're just getting warmed up here. They will be stronger together. Yeah. What do you think, Vince? Yeah, I think despite the fact that some of the brands that we've mentioned on the Mattel side, in terms of Barbie, for example, have been seeing declines for several years running in terms of uh, their sales and you know not seeing the growth that they want at all with some of those core names. At the same time, uh, Hasbro has shown, uh, I think the adept ability that you mentioned in terms of branching out a little bit in terms of their strategy and also uh, some of these licensing deals that they've been involved with with Disney and other popular 
titles in media, for example, have proven very lucrative for them. Also, for example, the maker of Star Wars toys, Hasbro. So I think the combination definitely seems uh, like a very appealing idea, especially for Mattel investors and just uh, to create an entity that can, can better compete in otherwise pretty fragmented industry. Combined, again, they would have about uh, 30%, about a third of market share in the U.S. But Otherwise, in terms of this deal, the specific details that we have are pretty sparse. So we know the deal discussions are in process, but there are still a lot of obstacles uh, to something like this coming together. For example, the two companies would have to agree on a valuation and a buyout premium. And that's not necessarily going to be easy since Mattel stock is down 50% year to date. Uh, before the news of these deal negotiations broke, and management will be trying to get the bid up from the multi-year lows where the stock is currently trading. And if they even then, if they do manage to come to an agreement, uh, I think the regulatory picture is also unclear. Uh, the toy industry might be pretty fragmented, but I think it's always tough to sell the idea of combining the number one and number two top two players in any industry, and uh, maybe. The, the combination, the market share that they'll be able to claim will be too much. There might be concessions in terms of spinning off certain businesses. We'll see, but we'll check in on this deal as more details emerge. Um, but while we're on the topic of M&A, another deal made headlines yesterday that I wanted to discuss as well, Asset, and that is with private equity firm Rourke Capital, which has made a bid for Buffalo Wild Wings. So let's get some background for where Buffalo Wild Wings business currently stands before we look at work itself and their buy offer. So, B-Dub's stock was down close to 25% year-to-date prior to the buyout news. And looking back two years to when the stock traded briefly above, I think it was $200 per share, that decline is actually down to over 40% in that time. And the company, I think, has already had to navigate sort of crossroads before this acquisition news came to light. Because over the summer, uh, the CEO, Sally Smith, a longtime CEO, she announced her retirement after activist investor Mercado Capital. They managed to wrangle more control of the company, winning a proxy battle, and they put three of their people on the board of directors. So, Asset, we know that the restaurant sector has been dealing with some pretty weak traffic and business conditions over the past two years. And Buffalo Wild Wings itself, you know, their comparable sales at restaurants have been in decline for, I think, six of the past seven quarters. Profit margins are hurting. What do you think was Mercado Capital's biggest criticism of the company before they won the board seats? And how do you think they're trying to, to kind of turn the company around? Marcado's biggest beef uh, with Buffalo Wild Wings was probably the fact that uh, Be Wild, as, as we call it, wasn't using its uh, capital appropriately. The company, in trying to boost earnings per share, was buying back restaurants. Now, traditionally, if you are a quick service or fast casual chain, you're moving in the opposite direction. Uh, and some listeners may remember, we actually talked about this about a year ago. Uh, most companies will start to franchise restaurants and go capital light as they become more successful. So think Wendy's and Dunkin' Donuts, which have both gone to a near 100% franchise model, where the corporation doesn't own its own store so much as collects those really lucrative royalty fees. Mm-hmm. Well, Buffalo Wild Wings was actually trying to boost its core earnings by going to franchisees and buying back restaurants at a high cost. And Marcato stepped in and just really took issue with this. And I sort of agreed with them. I thought that this isn't the way to boost earnings long term. Uh, I think they suffered from that. And 
At the same time, as you mentioned, Vince, concurrent to this, the trends inverted for uh, the fast casual industry, whereas dining out had been increasing over the past few years, suddenly, you know, concessions by grocery stores, the um, availability of ordering out and Uber Eats, which has sprung up, so many factors have combined to take traffic away from fast casual restaurants. One of those being McDonald's is back, believe it or not, and, and it's getting a little bit of market share from traditional players. So uh, really bad point for Buffalo Wild Wings to be at. And then one more thing is hit, which is its costs are increasing due to rising chicken wings. So it's sort of a, a perfect storm of factors which made them vulnerable for this new capital group, Rourke Capital Group, to come in with an offer of $150 per share. Yep. The the traffic trends have been weak, you know, fast casual, casual dining for a lot of different, uh, I guess, subsectors within the restaurant industry. And with Mercado Capital, um, now that they're in control, you know, they're going to uh, be pushing for the re-franchising that a lot of the restaurant industry has been pushing towards too. And they've also made changes, for example, to the promotional strategy. You mentioned the rising cost of the chicken wings. You know, For example, my brother and I used to be big fans of their Tuesday promotion uh, in terms of half off their traditional wings uh, every week. and But they swapped that. They swapped their traditional wings, for example, for boneless ones, since the traditional wings have steadily increased in cost over the years, and they couldn't afford, you know, having the prices, having that promotion, um, and the traffic just wasn't making up for the loss and profitability there. And then the refranchising effort has really begun in earnest too. Uh, I think there was over 80 locations in Canada, Texas, Pennsylvania, nearby Washington D.C. Um, restaurants there being selected as part of that process. And Mercado wants to take the current about 50% franchise proportion for Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, 1,200 locations total, and push it closer to 90%, which would be in line with some of the the competitors and other restaurant chains that you mentioned us at. Also, Burger King, I think Domino's are at similar levels. So, we're capital throwing its hat in the ring. This is a private equity firm that has a lot of experience in the restaurant industry. They've had previous or current investments in Arby's, Jimmy John's, Annie Ann's, among many other dining chains. And in the past month, the bid it's made uh, supposedly is at over $150 per share. So, though the Two companies, I don't believe they've come to the negotiating table yet. Even at $150 even for the offer, that would be a 28% premium to yesterday's closing price for Buffalo Wild Wings stock. And Mercado Capital, uh, they spend months trying to get their directors on the board. Now they're finally beginning to execute on their turnaround plan, and they get this buyout offer. Asit, do you think this is a deal management is or should be seriously considering you know, at that approximately $150 if the reports are accurate? I think they should because that much of a premium implies that Work Capital Group sees that it can do a lot on the execution front to improve margins and keep increasing the price per share. Otherwise, why would they go in with such a hefty offer mm-hmm. uh, only to see share price continue to be stagnant or fall further? So management understands that this is a uh, you know, well-disciplined company which will come in. In my opinion, I think that Work Capital Group will attack restaurant margin. Restaurant margin is when you take your total revenue and then all of your stores, on the cost side, you take your occupancy, your labor cost, your uh, food costs, 
a few other operating um, expenses and then get that bottom figure. It's relative to the restaurant industry. So I did a quick thumbnail calculation this morning. Uh, Buffalo Wild Wings restaurant margin is 20.5%. And that's sort of low. I think that any good private equity group like Work Capital could come in there and we, we could see three to five percentage points of improvement, which you know those dollars add up given the company's top line. And I think that management doesn't have a lot of other options. Sally Smith, as you mentioned, Vince, she's going to retire at year end. So there's a little bit of confusion, uh, uneasy rudder at the top. Who's going to lead? Marcado has the board seats, but not haven't necessarily you know provided uh, more leadership alternatives. So I think that it's actually in Buffalo's interests to go ahead and take this offer and work with the incoming team to see, number one, if they can improve those restaurant margins, and number two, get back to basics. Yes, wing costs are rising, but you get people into wings restaurants with a promise, that primal promise of watching sports, eating wings, and drinking beer. And I know this sounds simplistic, but that's the way to increase those comparable sales, which are projected to be at minus 1.5% this year. So to reverse those comps trends, you got to get back to making it fun for people like Vince and his brother to come in there on Tuesday night, watch a basketball game, um, drink some beer, eat wings. So and I think that Wart understands this, given the pedigree that you mentioned uh, companies they've worked with, they know how to get to that core value proposition and emphasize that. Yeah, and I, I, the last thing I'll add to that is some the change that Work Capital that has had in their portfolio, the franchising and the push that trend towards greater franchising is something that could absolutely align with Mercado Capital's views and and kind of bring bring them together, uh, assuming the offer is enough for shareholders uh, to to kind of agree and and have the deal go through. So we're, again, we'll provide updates on the show as more details emerge regarding this situation. Next up, we're going to take a look at one of the best performing IPOs of 2017. Thanks again to Harry's for supporting The Molly Fool and Industry Focus. The company's two founders, Jeff and Andy, wanted to challenge the big razor companies and their outlandish prices, so they started Harry's. And by purchasing their own blade factory, they made sure that customers would be able to get high-quality blades at half the price they typically pay at the drugstore. I've been a big fan of Harry's for over a year now, and my other shaving supplies, the fancy electric razor, safety razors, and cheapo disposables have all been retired at this point. When I wake up, I have a hard enough time getting out of bed, but Harry's has made shaving one of the highlights of my morning routine. Their precision engineered blades always give me a fast, close shave on the first pass, which is a must when I'm trying to get out the door as quickly as possible. And let's not forget about the shaving cream. My wife and I can't get enough of the scent and I've had to double my regular Harry's orders so she can claim half of everything we get. Fools, to bring your own shaving experience to the next level, start shaving with Harry's today. You can claim your free trial set, including a weighted, ergonomic razor handle, a five-blade cartridge with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, and the rich shave gel. Claim that free trial set a $13 value by going to harrys.com fool. That's right, Harry's is so confident you'll love their products that they're offering foolish listeners a shaving set for free just pay $3 for shipping. Go to harrys.com slash fool. Our last topic for today is Canada Goose Holdings. The apparel company priced its IPO over the summer, and in the several months since then, shares have gained over 50%. And this is a company that has grown and flourished thanks 
to the strength of its brand and the reputation that it has for offering very high quality outerwear made in Canada that can survive very harsh environments and conditions, but at the same time is very coveted in fashion circles and in you know uh, urban fashion centers as well. And this allows Canada Goose to occupy the high-end luxury corner of the market. Its famous parkas can easily run over $1,000. Uh, the company released its fiscal second quarter earnings last week. Asit, what has impressed you the most about this company? The thing that's really jumped out at me, Vince, is a strategy that uh, Canada Goose has that's clicks and bricks. So company reported uh, 34% in fiscal second quarter uh, 2018 earnings. And that came from a combination of physical stores, country-specific online stores, and then traditional retail channels, which they call wholesale. So they, they sell wholesale to high-end retailers. And this seems to be the path forward. If you are a emerging retailer and uh, that, that shadow of Amazon is looming over you as it looms over every single retail business uh, on the planet, this might be a way to succeed and flourish. Have a niche product, as you mentioned, a parka which sells for $1,000 and other more affordable outerwear. Uh, they use handcrafted uh, materials, so they actually hire sewers. If you read through their uh, annual reports, this is a company which sort of backs up that price tag with that artisan component we've discussed many times, which is, uh, I think, very attractive to both people who desire quality and, and hipster contingent. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yep. And um, then have flagship stores. I want to read something from the company's most recent transcript, which is, is interesting to me. This is from the CFO, John Black, and he's talking about the stores that they open. So bear with me, listeners. So we do have a few learnings, of course, from the new stores. And there's some minor changes in the economics of the stores, the new ones versus the old ones, but they're not material. So just as a reminder, a few things to consider when you're looking at the stores. They're generally between 3,000 and 5,000 square feet. Our cost to enter them from a CapEx, that's um, capital expenditure perspective, is between three million and five million. And they're profitable in the first year and paid back within two years. So those are the hurdle rates we put in place and all the new stores should achieve those. Right now, Canada Goose has flagship stores in Toronto, London, Tokyo, New York City, and Chicago, and they plan to have 20 stores in place by 2020. But while these are modeled after the, the big innovators, Apple's retail store, of course, which, which started this trend, they're nothing like a traditional idea of a flagship store. They're actually quite tiny when you think about a high-end brand. Lower footprint, lower capital investment, much higher return on that investment, much quicker return on uh, the investment. So I was sort of amazed by this. I have, uh, my wife has family in Canada, so I'm familiar with the brand. Actually, somehow I confuse this with a vodka brand out there, but it's not. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's a quite uh, nice hybrid model that maybe companies can follow and be insulated from the trends that we talk about all the time on this show. What leapt out at you, Vince, when you when you looked over this company? I know you've been interested, uh, I think, since their IPO in, in Canada Goose. Yeah, I've I've wanted to cover this company for some time now. This today, uh, you 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 mentioned as one of our show ideas. Was very excited to to take that on and and mention this company for any fools who haven't heard of it or they've seen the performance. Kind of curious. Uh, 
how, you know, what makes this company so special. You mentioned some of the long-term management targets uh, in terms of the their kind of DTC footprint, their direct-to-consumer footprint. They want 15 to 20 e-commerce sites, uh, 15 to 20 company-owned retail stores over the next few years. And it's really uh, interesting to see how important that direct-to-consumer component of their business uh, has become in terms of profitability, but also their growth as well. You know, in uh, fiscal 2017, DTC revenue was about. 28.5% of the total top line. The prior year, it was just 11.4%. And the year before that, it was just 3.7%. So, the growth they've seen in terms of expansion with these stores, with the sites, the volume that's moving through them is excellent. Uh, I remember management in one of the calls speaking to how I think it was their Tokyo store. When that opened, uh, there was apparently over 100 people in line waiting for the store to open. So, this kind of cachet that this brand is able to, that has developed for itself. And on that side, in terms of the expansion, the growth they're seeing there, it's great, but this also has a huge impact on their profitability because the profitability of the DTC segment is so much higher. For example, gross margin of 73.7% in the most recently reported quarter versus 47.4% for the wholesale segment, which is bigger and the more traditional uh, route of working with your retail partners, department stores, for example. And uh, another comment from management I thought was very powerful. A jet, they said a jacket sold via the DTC channel gives the company two times to four times greater contribution to operating income than the sale of the same jacket through wholesale partners. So you can understand why management is so focused on this uh, part of their business. And I think there's also an opportunity for the company to expand into other product categories too. For example, the Canagoose recently launched a knitwear collection that has been selling very well, uh, meeting, I believe, or possibly exceeding management expectations. Uh, and each new launch, I think, like this, gives them insight for the next potential category release and gives them more coverage beyond just you know the winter cold weather outerwear to other seasons so they can branch out their products and uh, kind of even out some of their revenue in terms of the seasonality. And final points then in terms of what this company and if you're considering this stock, I think we should spend a few minutes looking at the valuation because in the apparel industry, uh, the double-digit annual growth that this brand has been able to deliver, I think their three-year uh, CAGR for revenue growth is around 37% uh, for the past three fiscal years. And the U.S. has actually shown the strongest growth for the company uh, with the three-year uh, compound annual growth rate of over 50%. Um, and you mentioned uh, your family in Canada and, and their familiarity with this brand. Brand awareness in the U.S. market is still pretty low for Canada Goose, just 16% compared to 70, 76% in their home country. So, a lot of room to run here. And the stock is trading at over $31 per share. That puts the forward price to earnings above 70 times, according to S&P Capital IQ estimates. Uh, so, you're paying a pretty penny for a piece of that growth. Are you sold, Asset, on 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 this business and 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 kind of paying that premium? I am actually. Uh, if you look at their price to sales ratio, it's another way to gauge uh, what a reasonable price for a company is when it's very young, and that is up at the, their trailing twelve month sales are seven times uh, the price is seven times um, the twelve month trailing sales, mm -hmm. and so that both of those numbers are a little bit. High, but what you're paying for is that growth. And keep in mind, this is still a very tiny company. 
so it has the potential to earn in uh, to both of those metrics. Uh, one of the things that I like to look at when I see a company that um, is flying high, but I'm interested in it, is how well do they manage their inventory? And why I look at that is because at some point with these rapidly increasing sales, you're going to bump into problems, most likely with the relationship between your sales and your inventory. Have a bad quarter, and then the market will adjust that high-flying P-E ratio down. We've all had that experience. Mm-hmm. What I really like about this company is that its manufacturing is quite flexible. They have factories in Canada, and they're not afraid to sell out of items. And in fact, in one of the recent calls, uh, the CEO was discussing that, look, yeah, we, we do sell out of items, but that's a good thing. You don't want to be overstocked in inventory, which means they are a little bit more fleet of foot, can supply inventory a little bit more rapidly, and sell into demand. That's one of your protections if you're buying a high-flying retail company which has a high price to sales earning, you don't want to be the other way where they've got a lot of inventory but one slip up is going to cost them. Nonetheless, there could be some uh, rough uh, quarters in any growth story uh, as long-term investors fools know that if the company has a competitive advantage, it's well managed um, and the demand is there, you can work through those quarters. So given all of those I would be an investor. Look, it's not going to be a straight up path, but I think this company has a lot of potential. Very interested in it and glad that we had the opportunity to talk about it today. Yep. I think the brand is just uh, the the value of that brand, the reputation that's developed, not easy to do, very valuable. The flexibility in terms of their manufacturing that they mentioned and the flexibility and their willingness to uh, maintain that cachet by having items sold out, for example, having lines at stores is very valuable. Their inventory levels will probably get a little choppy, maybe raise, rise a little bit. I think they did in the previous quarter as they expand, for example, with uh, the with their DTC push as they open these company-owned stores. They want to be able to make sure that they supply them properly. But Hubby, I think, has shown some uh, a great ability to, to manage that, and also, uh, you know, their retail partner is very happy, showing great sell-through rates uh, through their wholesale, through the wholesale channels, and at full price. So again, the the brand being very coveted, I think, among fashion-conscious consumers, and it's definitely a company that we'll have to speak to again uh, in the coming months, provide an update, and and see where things stand as they push into this DTC uh, a strategy that a lot of other apparel companies like Nike, for example, are focusing on. And uh, otherwise, Asit, thanks for joining us today. Fools, thanks for listening. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Again, thank you for listening. And fool on. Fool on.